In your Bibles, you're headed to Mark chapter 11, if you would. Mark chapter 11. If you don't have the sermon notes, just raise your hand. The ushers will move through the auditorium so you can follow along a little bit better. What we've been doing is on Sunday mornings, we've been doing a lot of Job, and then sometimes Sunday evenings, and then sometimes I've been mixing in from a Wednesday night series, Mark. And so I'm going to do that this week is just jump with me to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11 is picking up in the situation where Jesus is in his last week. The Gospel of Mark spends one-third of his entire gospel talking about that last week. Jesus on that Sunday has come into Jerusalem. He has done the parade that we call the triumphal entry. The crowds have cheered. They have quoted Psalm 118 about Hosanna. The Lord of hosts is here and that he is Savior. Lord save us. Lord save us. And then Jesus completes the parade. The Bible says that he walks into the city and he looks at the temple. Then he leaves. The next day he returns to Jerusalem from Bethany. And the reason that he does that is, as we've been talking about on Wednesdays and other times, the city has, during this Passion Week, this uh, what we call Passover Week, it has just exploded. And a lot of the peoples would be out in the fields, out in the, in the uh, nearby communities. So Jesus stayed in Bethany and Mary, and Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' home. So he's coming back. And on the way in, he curses the tree, or they see the tree that he cursed the day before, and they're amazed about that. That's all in that story of Mark chapter 11. Tuesday, he comes in, and uh, this, this is Monday, excuse me. Monday comes in, he sees the tree, and he curses the tree that doesn't have the fruit on it, and he continues into the temple, and, he, and in that Monday morning, he then overthrows everything in the temple. And he disrupts the business. If you were with us where we talked about that, there was exorbitant gouging that was taking place. And the leaders of the Jews, who were the Jewish uh, teachers and, and those who were supposed to be reaching out to others, they have made the court of the Gentiles into a court where it's just business and it's just everything that shouldn't be there. And Jesus runs those merchants out. He says this will become a den of thieves. He blocks the door so you can't take a shortcut through the temple, which was very common in that day. And by the end of the day, Jesus leaves. Now it's on, it's on the way back into the town, Tuesday. Jesus has already unsettled the entire city. There is all kinds of hubbub. There has been already a um, tremendous amount of, of upsetness by the Jewish leaders. You're holding your finger in Mark chapter 11. Would you jump over to John 11? John 11 before we get started. So we're coming into Tuesday and Jesus is going to come into the city and he's going to return to the city. But to get a flavor of what's going on, Just remember that the last few weeks that Jesus has been headed this direction from Galilee, he has said on three different occasions, I'm going to die when I get to Jerusalem. They're going to persecute me. They're going to scourge me. I'm going to be turned over to men, Gentiles. They're going to kill me. And his his disciples have had a variety of reactions. And so now he's coming back into the city on Tuesday, and he knows, he's announced that they're going to kill him this week. And on top of that, just to get a feeling of what's going on in John chapter 11, if you uh, get a whole flavor of, of this whole idea of where the people are thinking, jump down to verse 53. The leaders, just the last week or two before, they have gathered, they've had a council, and one of them stands and has made comment that somebody has to die for the whole nation. Verse 53, then from that day forth, they took counsel together for to put him to death. This is just in this last few days. Go down to the end of the chapter. 
verse 57. Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment to everybody that if any man knew where he were, that he should show it that they might take him, Jesus, and arrest him. Well, Jesus showed up in public. He cleansed the temple. He's been having a parade on Sunday. But the Jewish leaders didn't do anything. Do you remember why they didn't do anything? Do you remember why? Yeah, there's, there's fear here. They're afraid of the masses of the people. And it's going to show up in our story tonight. But just to set the story, get the setting, Jesus is knowing he's going to die. They have a warrant out for his arrest. Not official, but verbal. Um, the, uh, he's, since that moment that he cleansed the temple... Since the day before, we read in Mark chapter 11, look at verse 18. They have determined they're going to kill him. They're going to kill him. They're going to get rid of him. And so him coming back Tuesday morning is basically he's picking a fight. He's coming back in the city. There's going to be a conflict. There's no way around about it. Jesus is promoting, he's prompting more confrontation with the spiritual leaders. And they're going to have a spiritual showdown on Tuesday. In fact, what happens on Tuesday is they have multiple different discussions debates. They come at him politically. They come at him theologically. They're going to try to get Jesus tripped up because they got to turn the Roman soldiers. They got to turn the Roman soldiers into a point that this is political, that they would agree to kill Jesus, the Roman leaders. So they've got to try to get Jesus to say he's creating a revolution. They got to turn the people against Jesus. So they've got to somehow make it look that Jesus isn't this really good guy. They've got to catch him in his words. Now, that would never happen with modern politicians, that there would be people after them and try to snag him in their words. But back in this day, that's what they were doing to Jesus. They were after him, and so they're going to they're gonna come. There's going to be five, sometimes some will say six. There's going to be where they're going to, in different groups, come against Jesus. And so for the sake of our outline, we're going to put it this way this evening. The religious leaders are opposed to Jesus Christ. That's how we're just going to unfold the story tonight. They're opposed to him. And so what they're going to do is they're going to challenge Jesus. They're going to find something to accuse him of treason or something. And so we read and we pick up our story. It's Tuesday. And starting with verse 27, Jesus is back in the temple Tuesday morning. And it's in Jerusalem. And he's walking in the temple. That's important. He's walking in the temple where there's going to be a lot of crowds, a lot of busyness. This is where religious activity should be taking place. There comes to him the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now, this isn't some flunkies. They are coming now with the big guns. They're coming against him, and they want to catch him. And they ask him a question. By what authority did you do these things? Now, you and I know by reading it what they meant. When they say, did you do these things, what are they referring to? This is Tuesday morning. What happened Monday? Okay, he kicked them out of the temple. What did you, why, who gave you the authority? Now remember, included, did you catch who's the ones that are asking the question? The very first, the first um, mention of characters was who? The chief priests. That's important. They could ask him this question, but what authority did you do this? Because they're the ones who are, from a human point of view, they're in charge. They're in charge. So you got the scene. You got the setting, okay? Referring to the cleansing of the temple. This is their place. This is where they have jurisdiction. This is where they have the authority. This was their business that he upset. 
This is where they're supposed to be leading the worship. And he attacked them. He attacked their lack thereof of training. Because remember what he said? If you remember in, in, in um, his statement, back in verse 17, my house shall be, a, be called, what does it say in your Bible? It's supposed to be called, yeah, look at the, verse, the phrase before that. Okay? They highlight something here. Jesus did. My house shall be called of all nations. Okay? The house of prayer. We've talked about this. That he is making it very clear that this area was supposed to be a witness to who? The Gentiles. And so he's made it very clear, you guys have failed in your commission. You have failed in your theological outreach. So what he's done, he's, he's, he's attacked their, their, their ministry. He's, a, he's, he's gone after their area of responsibility. So they're going to challenge, who gave you the authority to come into our part of this worship center and you do something? Who gave you the authority to upset our business? This isn't the first time that they've done something like this to them. There are multiple other times that they have challenged and said, who gave you the authority to forgive sins? Who gave you the authority to cast out devils? Who gave you the authority to do some healing on the Sabbath day? They've done this multiple times. And so you remember their setting, okay? They're challenging him because they have a system of doing things. And he's upset their system. <laughs> do, does tradition ever work this way? That people get upset if the traditional system is out of whack? That, that happens. But remember in a Jewish person's mind, and this plays into this passage as well, that they were very big on credentials. They were very big on quoting people. If I wanted to get a point across, I wouldn't say, thus saith the Lord. I would say, thus saith Earl Binkley. Thus saith John Hitz. And the name of those peoples that you would throw out, they're supposed to contain credibility. And so they're saying, who gave you this authority? Who gave you credentials? In other words, who even, they could be implying this way, who gave you a degree to preach? Who authorized? But it, it, does that happen in America? That, you, that there was, was there ever a time in America people weren't allowed to preach unless they were ordained by certain groups? Yeah, that happened frequently. Okay, people went to jail in America. There was groups that were that were fined. They lost their lives because they weren't of the proper credentials. And so they're asking Jesus that question, and they're challenging. And their thinking is, if Jesus claims no credentials, if he doesn't have anybody backing him up, that just kind of deteriorates. That that invades. That that cuts him down in front of the populace. We can say he's a maverick. He's this independent guy doing it all by himself. And he really doesn't have anybody behind him saying that he is of, of good quality and that he's sterling and that he's got his theology right. If Jesus claims my credentials come from God, they're going to accuse him of blasphemy. So they think they've got him trapped. But Jesus is so wonderfully clever. So they think that they've got him in a spot and Jesus refuses to answer him. We read the story, and, he, and don't, don't think he's rude. Don't read it when they say, by what authority do you do these things? Who gave you this authority? He answered and said, I will also ask of you one question and answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things, if you answer me. Okay? The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Answer me. You know, what's interesting is Jesus has already given them many, many, many signs of his authority. 
So understand that what he's doing is he's not being rude, being caustic. He's just saying, listen, I've already answered this question several times. I've already answered. So I've told you answers. I've given you answers. Let's see what you do with the answers that I've already given you. What have you done with what you already know? And so what Jesus does is he turns the table on them. And he basically, number two in our outline, he exposes them. Okay, they, they're opposed to him. Now Jesus exposes the re religious leaders by asking them a simple question. He answers their question with a question, and once again, he's showing his authority over them. It's interesting if you look at the question, and you highlight two phrases that he says in there. He says, answer me. Both of them are imperatives. So they're saying, you've got to answer. And he turns around and says, basically, you've got to answer me. I command you to answer me. And he's showing that he's the one in charge, not them, that they're in charge. And so what happens is he uses a question to try to teach them. And the question is about John the Baptist. And it's a question that is very clever in the way he puts it. But it's interesting that he would use a question to answer and to prompt their thinking. And it got me to thinking about this. Okay, Do we ever use questions to teach? Does it ever happen? Do I ever use questions of you when I'm preaching? Quite a, fit, quite a bit. What am I trying to do? Try to keep you awake. That's not the answer, okay? That's not the answer. To get you to do what? To think. To, 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 to stay with it. Okay? To do it. And I, and I got to thinking, Jesus is doing this with a group of lost people. Okay? And they're, they're tough people that he's talking to. But in this one moment, he's presenting truth to them. Is it possible that when we share the gospel, maybe we should think about asking questions? What would be the benefit when you're sharing the gospel of asking questions rather than just saying, oh, by the way, boom, 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 and giving them statements of fact? What could be the benefit of asking that individual that you're talking to and sharing the gospel? What could be a benefit of asking them a question? Okay, let's start here. Okay, the comprehension on their part. Somebody over here? Great. Anything else? What's that? Okay, they're getting involved in it. Anything else? Right, right. So I just, for, I'm going to summarize basically what some of you said. Okay, questions automatically promote a response internally. Okay, that when, when a question's put out there, you're automatically thinking. Now, us husbands, we don't answer them, but outside of that, okay, that, but it prompts, it prompts some thinking on it. And you're finding out what they believe, okay, when you're asking them questions. You're getting them to think through their beliefs by asking questions. You're getting them to think through Bible principles, Bible truths, claims of Jesus Christ, which he's going to do in this passage. You're not appearing condescending. You're appearing as if what they say has value. Okay, and that you're respecting to find out where they're at. Um, you display a genuine interest in their thoughts, even though you know where you're going to go with it. You're just presenting that and making it more, more palatable. Questions often help thoughts stick longer than a lecture does. You know, in that sense, there's so many more that we could ask. But I find it interesting. Jesus talking to some lost people in this passage asks questions of them and challenges them that way. And I started thinking, you know what? When we share the gospel, maybe we should do that. 
Maybe when we're, when we're talking about using the Bible study book, which it does a wonderful job, foundations, asking questions. But when we use the Romans Road, maybe we need to start wording it in a way with questions to be, be able to keep them with us. Anyway, he asked the question about the baptism of John. Was it from heaven or not? It's interesting. He doesn't have to qualify who he means. He doesn't have to say, you know, John, the guy who came in the wilderness, because everybody knows him. Everybody knows John, so he didn't have to further identify. And I got to thinking about this a little bit more, that he involves John in this discussion right away. Right away when he's in the first of the debates that takes place. And there's a reason why he does this. Because it says even in the text, if you jump down a little bit further, in verse 32, and the leaders afterwards are thinking, they say, for all men count John that he was a prophet. And so even the leadership that Jesus is talking to, they understand that John was commonly thought of of being a prophet. So Jesus bringing him into discussion makes perfect sense that Jesus would do this. Besides, he and John are tied together at the hip. There's so many things that they had in common, that they worked together. If you just start thinking through that, Jesus and John, it says in Scripture, both were sent from God. John 1. In fact, it starts off, there was a man sent from God. His name was John. It talks about Jesus coming, who was being sent from from God later on in John, where it talks about, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that came for those reasons. Both of them spoke very very highly of each other. They were very, very um, respectful of each other. John even said, I can't even untie his shoe latchets or his, his you know, strings on his sandal. Jesus says, no other, no other has been born who is greater than John the Baptist. They both were independents. In that time and in that society, both of them were independent of the hierarchical system, of the organized religion. John clearly supported Jesus' ministry. And everybody heard him say, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away sins of the world. Okay, so they heard John say, I am not the Messiah. I am just the messenger sent before him. So they all know this. Both of them have the same message. The kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, so there's a lot of commonality. They both make reference that John was part of the prediction of the one messenger coming before the Messiah. So they both talk about it. And even at, G- at the baptism of Jesus, remember there's, a, there's the loud voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son. Now keep that phrase in mind. It's going to show up later on in this story. My beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so you have a lot of connection between John and Jesus. So Jesus bringing him up makes perfect sense. The Jewish leaders, they reason within themselves. You read the next couple of verses. They don't answer because they reason. They say, if we say he's of God, then Jesus is going to say, well, then why didn't you listen to him? If we say that he ju- was just a man, then Jesus is going to say to us, you know, wait a minute, wait a minute. He was just a man, and the crowds that we're trying to persuade against Jesus will be mad at us because everybody thinks he, and, and is confident he's a prophet. So they feel like Jesus has just turned the tables. That Jesus has put them between a rock and a hard place, which he did. And so their response is this. We cannot tell. What it says literally is, we don't know. We don't know. It's not that we're not going to answer. It's just we don't know. But they know, but they refuse to answer Jesus Christ. 
And so here you are, think this through, a religious holiday, religious leaders in a religious situation that everything is all about. And Jesus, Jesus is bringing up truth to them and they're going to reject Christ. What a heinous discussion is taking place. What a horrible situation. By the way, do religious people, even today, go through the motions, have the holidays, have the celebration, have the feast days, and still reject Christ? Yes. Frequently. Frequently. And so Jesus is going to do then what the, uh, he's going to challenge them. But I want to pause before we move on and talk about Jesus warning the religious leaders, or religious leaders are warned by Christ. I want to pause and I want to point out something. There are, in this text, there are very clear reasons given why religious people will reject Jesus Christ when we tell them the truth. Can I show you number one? They refuse to acknowledge God's authority over them. This is a common problem. That people who will think about Christ, who will celebrate Christmas, who will say the Apostles' Creed at times, they refuse to be born again. They refuse to let Christ be their Savior. They refuse to acknowledge Him as Lord God of their life because they reject God's authority over them. They know that if they say he is God, he is Lord, then he is in charge of their lives. And they don't want that. There are even religious people who gather on Sundays who they will go through the motions, but they don't want God to control Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday afternoon and evening. Would you say that that is true? Okay. That there's a lot of people that way? Can I give you a second reason? that a lot of religious people may reject Christ. They refuse to honestly examine the evidences before them. You can go to even seminaries, and you can sit there and hear and talk, even in some schools. They will deny that Jesus did miracles. They will deny He is the incarnate Son of God. Why? Well, they don't want to accept His authority, and they refuse to accept the evidences that are laid out before them. They will discredit the Bible. They will discredit the accounts. Time and time again, we've pointed out in the series of Mark, here's a challenge that people take out of this text or out of that text. They don't want to admit that the Bible is true. And they just blatantly refuse to accept the facts. By the way, it happens all the time. It happens even in the facts of people deciding where did the world come from. They will deny the evidences that Peter talks about, they will deny the evidences because they do not want to submit to God Almighty. They do not want to admit that the Bible is true. There's a third reason why people will reject Christ. Fear of others. A fear of others. Like in this case, these guys were more interested in their tactics than the truth. They were more interested in what the poll said than what the principles said. They even knew some of this truth, that John had a message, that Jesus did the miracles. But time and time again, they reject it. They don't want to, you know, and, and yet they won't accept it. They won't make a public uh, claim for it. They won't, they won't determine or declare where they're at because they fear people. They fear losing their position. That if they say something positive about Christ, they'll lose the position that they maintain here in this temple. Here in the business that they've got going. Here in their authority. They're afraid that they would be rejected by other God deniers. 
There are some people who would reject uh, saying this is true, this is clear evidences, because they're afraid that some others there who are their cronies would all of a sudden fire them from their school teaching. So they'll go along with evolution. They'll go along with denying the supernatural. It happens in our society all the time. People who are religious will not accept Christ as their personal Savior because of fear of what others might say. Does that ever fall against us that we're afraid what others might say? Sure it is. Sure it is. Some of us have had to battle that through. But here in the text, he's making it very clear. Some will reject Christ. And so when you're sharing the gospel with them, there's a thought here to keep in mind. Maybe use questions. There's a thought here that maybe... They are struggling with the evidences. They're struggling with fear of others. And you have to take them through that and help them to know. Keep this in mind. That exposure to truth does not leave somebody in neutral, in neutrality. When somebody hears the truth, they have got to make a decision. They may not say it outwardly, but they're saying it inwardly. And that's where Jesus is trying to get them to declare themselves. But when the truth is presented, when you share the word of God, you are making that person declare themselves in private and in their heart or openly in front of others. They cannot stay in neutral. They are not able to say, okay, me and God, there's, you know, we're just kind of not... No, you're making a decision. To listen or to reject. And so what happens in this text is that Jesus has refused to answer. He makes it very clear. He says, if you aren't going to answer mine, my question that I pose to you, then he goes on, he says, neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. And so he will, he's not going to give them further truth. He's not going to give them further evidences if they will not accept what he's already pointed out to them, but John. And uh, this makes perfect sense. Do you remember when there's that story that he gives about the rich man Lazarus in hell? And at the end of it, there's the claim that the rich man in hell says, send somebody to tell them, send somebody from the dead to tell them. And the response is they have Moses, they have the law. If they refuse to hear that, we're not sending anything else. And so it's very clear from a spiritual point of view, when people reject the word of God, Jesus isn't going to all of a sudden heap more upon them. He's going to hold them accountable. In fact, what we have in number three is the religious leaders are warned by Jesus. And he's not going to just try to keep on persuading. He's going to say, okay, guys, since you have taken the truth and you belligerently have refused to go any further, then let me give you a warning. This is some interesting ways of of presenting The gospel here is where do you start giving a warning? Where do you start? Well, Jesus did with these guys because they've heard multiple times. The warning that he gives them is in a form of a parable. It's the next chapter. The next chapter, the first few 12 verses, goes in this same conversation. And he began to speak unto them by parables. And so Mark records one. Matthew has another one. Okay, but that are, Matthew has two here, if not three. And so Jesus records this parable, and he tells them what we are going to call the parable of the terrible tenants. And in this story, Jesus is going to give a lot of explanation. I want to run to the end of the story. I wanted you to see how this all ties together. Go to the last few verses of the story that Jesus gives when he's giving the, pulling, drawing the net. He says in verse 10, Have you not read this scripture? And the answer is, they have. The answer is they read this portion of Scripture every Passover. This is the Hallel Psalms. 
These are the group of five psalms that they sing, that they read, that they use during Passover season. As people are celebrating, the leaders are chanting these verses. Psalm 118. Maybe you want to just hold your finger here and go back to Psalm 118 to get the flow of it and to understand Jesus is going to say, did you not read Psalm 118? Which they probably read the day before which they've used in public, in public demonstration. But he talks about, and he refers in, in Mark, Mark chapter 12, to one verse that's found in Psalm 118. But to get the flow of it, go back to the chapter, and let me point out a couple of different verses okay, in what happens here. This is the very passage that was quoted on the triumphal entry. You, you read about it in Psalm 118, verse 11, where they are calling out and they're saying, um, actually, it should be further down. Um, verse 26. Blessed be he that comes in the name of the Lord. That's where they get this from, that they were chanting on that day. And so the Jews understood this passage to be about them. Look at verse, eight, verse 10 and following. It says, All nations compassed me about, but in the name of the Lord will I destroy them. They compassed me about, yea, they compassed me about, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. They compassed me about like bees. They are quenched as the fire of thorns, for in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. And so he goes on, it ends up, The Lord is my strength and song has become my salvation. The Jews taught, that's them. That, that one who is being surrounded by the nations, that's us, that's Israel. This was their interpretation. That we are being surrounded and we are going to be persecuted. But the Lord is going to one day exalt us. And in fact, they say this. They would say, jump down in the passage. Verse 21. I will praise thee for thou hast heard me and art become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. This is their interpretation. That the stone that is cast aside is Israel. It's the Jews. And they're being pushed aside by everybody else. But the Lord will raise them up. And though they were rejected by the nations, they're going to become the capstone or the keystone is what we would probably in Pennsylvania understand better. And they're saying this is all about us. Jesus has a totally different interpretation of this text. And he does it in this moment. He says to them, he says, now wait a minute, let, let me tell you, have you not read in Scripture, which they did, which they preached, that it's all about them, and he's going to say, it's not about you. It's not about you. You want to know what the authority is? Let me tell you. The authority is, and he talks in, in Mark chapter 12, he says, I, I come with God's authority. And here's how he describes it. Mark chapter 10, he says, Have you not read this scripture? Mark 12, verse 10. The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The, he's saying God's going to do something great. People will reject something or someone. It's not Israel. But we know what it is. It is Jesus Christ. We know that. He even makes that clear in this text. But he will be raised up and to become the capstone, the keystone. That's a work of God. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Literally, the word that is used, it is stunning. It is unbelievable how this does, how he's resurrected and raised again. And even in, when Peter preaches in Acts chapter 4, he quotes this entire text. 
He goes back and he says, it is Jesus who is this rock, the stone that you have crucified that God is raising up. That's the end of the story. That's where Jesus concludes. And he's saying to the religious leaders, the ones who reject here are not the Gentiles, it's you. You religious leaders have rejected the stone that God has chosen. But God's going to raise him up. And he's going to exalt him. And he's going to put him in a prominent place. And it's going to stun everybody. And so that's the end of the story. That's where it ends up. Catch the story in the meantime. What he does there. The parable, before we read it, just let's keep these in mind. The parable was, is about a farmer who has his land leased out to tenants. He sends his servants to collect the, the annual harvest, the, the owner's portion. They keep on refusing and refusing. And they beat up the servants. They send them away. And so the owner says, I'm going to send my beloved son he uses that words, reading the parable. My beloved son, and surely those who are tenant farmers, they'll respect my son. So just taking the parable, keep in mind the owner is God. Keep in mind the vineyard is Israel. The Jews know they're called the vineyard of God. It's shown up in the Old Testament multiple times. The tenant farmers are the religious leaders. They're the ones in charge. The ones who are the servants who keep on coming time and again, they're the prophets. They've been sent multiple times. The beloved son in the story is Jesus Christ, okay? God's beloved son. And we just said, I just told you basically how the story goes. They lease it. This is just, and it's, they would understand this. This happens all the time. The owner says, you sharecroppers, give me my fee. But they say, no, they aren't going to share anything. They want to keep all the glory to themselves. They beat the, uh, the different ones who come time and time again. It's repeated, sending in different servants. They beat them all up. And so he says, they're going to respect my son. But when, look at the story, when the tenant farmers see the son, what do they say? Let's kill him. Why? Look at the, reading the story. Why do they want to kill him? Because then if there's no heir, then we get the land, is what their rationale is. And by the way, that was true. That was Jewish law. That worked that way. That it would happen that at times, if there was no heir, then those who were tenant farmers could make claim that they would then succeed in becoming the owners of the property. And so they're not claiming something that would be really out there. But the one thing that doesn't make any sense is they haven't even considered the idea that the owner might want retribution. You might want to take them to court. Well, that, you know, isn't it amazing how greed can get people to forget consequences? And so what happens is Jesus tells the story and he stops there. They killed the son and they think they're going to take over the land. And he asked the religious leaders, what should the owner do? Mark doesn't say their answer. Matthew does. Matthew records that the religious leaders respond. Do you remember what they say? What should the owner do to those tenant farmers? Anybody remember? He said, they say these words, literally, destroy them. This, this, doesn't this remind you of somebody speaking another parable to a guilty man and saying to that man, you know, you know that, you, that, that somebody took advantage of a poor sheep farmer, took his one sheep and killed it, you know, and then put it out there for others. And then the prophet says to 
king. David, what should be done to that man? And David says he should be punished. So David pronounced his own sentence. The Jewish leaders pronounced their own sentence. They said they should be destroyed. Look at what Jesus pronounces and he says. He says in verse 9, back in Mark, he just says, okay, yeah, you said it. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandmen and will give the vineyard unto others. Okay, he says, you, you've said it. That's what's going to happen. What's he predicting? He's predict, predicting their own destruction in 70 AD. How they're going to be destroyed. How they're going to be totally wiped out. So Jesus is relaying a lesson here to these leaders. And maybe we should go down to verse 13. This adds, brings it all together. They sought to lay hold on him, but they feared the people for, what does your Bible said? They something. What does it said? say in your Bible? For they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. Against them. And they left him and they went their way. They knew it. They knew it. They, they got it. They get it better than we do. They understood totally what was going on. Now what Jesus has just portrayed for them is God is very patient. God is very patient with Israel time and time and time again. There are religious people that religious people that will make the comment, do not accept God's prophets if they don't, like John the Baptist and the others. You're going to get worse. He's warning these men. If your hearts remain hard and you can't even say John the Baptist came from God, you're putting yourself in a place where your heart will be so hard that you will just do worse and worse deeds. You will do what the tenor farmers did. You will, you will somehow in your mind find it reasonable and rational to kill God's own son, the Messiah. And did they? Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. All because they're refusing to acknowledge Christ's authority. This, this all ties together in this entire story that these religious people will create, commit a crime that is unreasonable, but it is motivated by greed, by position, by wealth, by power, and they don't want to give it up. And so he's giving them this warning. He's saying that you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna get to the point, you're going to kill me. And by the end of the week, they do. And so it's very, very clear that, you guys, if you continue where you're going, and I can't help but wonder, remember, some of the, some of the Pharisees got, by the, by the end of all this, some of the Pharisees follow Christ. We read in Acts that some believe. Did this warning get across to them? Did they understand what he was doing? Very likely, very likely you got a Nicodemus who didn't like the way that that court proceeding goes on later on in this week. And so he, the point is, God is going to destroy you. He's warning them. He's clearly saying it. And then he's saying, and God is going to raise up the stone which the builders, you guys, who you know the word, you teach the word, you are the architects, you should have recognized what stone was that stone that God wanted to use to put it all together. And he says, God's going to do a wonderful thing. You should have known better. Now, let's you and I take and bring something here. How does this mean? What does this mean for us today? Being religious is not the same as recognizing Jesus as Savior. True? Yes? Okay. Just because we go to church, just because you carry your Bible, does not mean that you have recognized Christ as your Savior. You must be born again. You must repent of your sin. By being a part of this group, by having your kids come being kids choir, different things, that doesn't mean 
that you are a child of God. You're a child of God by you personally repenting of your sin and acknowledging that he is God's own son that's come in the flesh and given his life and resurrected. Questioning and challenging Christ's authority can lead to serious spiritual problems. Would you agree with that? That if you and I question his authority in our life, could we put ourselves on a path that is a dangerous path? Yes. Yes, let's take refusing to examine and accept the truths that Jesus has already given can lead to serious spiritual problems. Is it, is it bad if somebody here says to their parent, I wonder, I wonder, is Jesus really the Son of God? Is that wrong to ask that question? No. And so you sit there and you share the evidences. You sit there and you instruct. That's good. That's healthy. That's great. But to see the evidences, to hear the word of God and just reject it. And just say, no, 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 I don't believe it. That's for my mom and dad. That's for you know, the pastors. That's for somebody else. But that's not what I have for me. can lead to serious spiritual problems. The heart can become harder and harder and harder as time goes by. True. It's true. Let's go to the thought, think something else. Living by fear of man over a fear of God can lead to serious spiritual problems. True. If you and I operate by a fear of man, can it cause great difficulties for us spiritually? Okay, let's, let's lay this one out. I fear, let's say, I fear to ever share the word of God. And I refuse to give out the gospel. Will that create spiritual problems for me and for others? Yes. I fear getting right with God because if I have to confess something that I've harbored or hidden... But I fear to bring it before, you know, before the, whoever I've sinned against. Can that lead to serious spiritual problems? Yes. Can, can I say I fear to live for the Lord at work, at school? I don't want to take a stand for, for Christ. I fear what other people might say about me. I fear that I might lose my position, my popularity at school. So as a high school student, I didn't want to, if this were me, I didn't want to share my faith. I didn't want to say that I was a believer. So instead, I would go along with the cussing and the cursing and all the other junk that goes with it. Could that lead to serious spiritual problems? Yes. Yes. Let's make another statement. You and I should respond to Christ quickly all the time. When God is convicted, when God has given out the truth, we should react and not sit and mull it over, but we should respond. By the way, there are myths that are destroyed in this passage, God myths, that are commonly thrown out there that give excuse, that give, that give people the idea that it's okay to do whatever you want. Here's a God myth that's destroyed in this text, a popular myth. God is universally accepted and respected. That is not true. Okay? That's not true. God is not universally respected. Now, the, the idea that people always go to is a God of their choosing. 
A God who is made in their image rather than them in the image of God. Would you accept that that is true? That a lot of people will say, I I have this vision of God, I have this idea of God. That God just kind of says, everybody go and do your own thing and it's okay as long as you're sincere. Well, there's a God myth here. That the God of the Bible, it's destroyed. God of the Bible is not universally accepted by individuals. That's what it means that no man seeks after him. Because this God that we worship is holy and righteous. And in fact, here's a God myth. God is not always nice. That sounds like a shock, doesn't it? What I mean by this is people say, well, God's just nice to everybody. What the God we serve, he will judge the unrepentant. He will judge the religious leaders who refuse to bow the knee to him. And so by world standard, that God who is a God who is judging people, they don't think he's a nice God, but that's the God of the Bible. God will one day judge us. For did we serve him? Did we, did we do what we're supposed to do? And we'll get rewards or not. And thank God that he doesn't condemn us. But if you're sitting here and you are not truly born again, you might be facing the God who says, come judgment day, if you're not born again, you might say, Lord, Lord, have not I done all these good things? I went to church. I did TNT. I did Calvary clubs. I did all those things. And he would say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Yeah, but he should be nice to me because I went to church. You need a relationship with God Almighty. You need to be right with the Lord. There's another thought here. You and I should never, ever let our heart be hardened against the teachings of Jesus. So we preached the last week that if you're not sure you're, you're saved, you know, test yourself according to the Bible. Do not harden yourself against those tests and say, okay, I don't want to take the test. I go to church. I show up here on a regular basis. Therefore, I'm saved. I don't, have, I don't have the obedience. I don't have the love for the believers. I don't have a love. I have a love for the world. I don't have a love for the brethren. I don't see many answers to prayer. But I don't care. If you harden your hearts, you could end up in deeper spiritual problems than where you are right now. You could do the most heinous things of rejecting Christ more and more and more. But what about the believer who's truly born again? And the Spirit of God is convicting and saying to you and challenging you to do things of serving, but you say no to the Spirit of God. And you don't listen to the Spirit of God. Could you start a path in your own life, a believer, born-again believer, that could get you into a more difficult situation? The Spirit of God is saying to you and pricking your heart, live a life of integrity. Live a life of purity. Live a life that you covenant with your eyes that you won't look where you shouldn't be looking. Could you become hard in your heart and say, it won't happen to me. I'm okay. That, that stuff won't get a hold of my life and my heart and control me. Could you be down a serious, dangerous spiritual path? It's okay for me. I can gossip. It's okay for me, I can lie. It's okay for me that I can cheat people. It's not that big of a deal. When you harden your heart in any level, if you get callous to the Spirit of God, 
you're, you're, you and I get on dangerous grounds. If the Spirit of God has been convicting you of late, challenging you of late to share the Word of God with somebody else, then don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Respond to the Spirit of God and say, I will take that message lest I lose a love for the lost by becoming calloused. Lest the Spirit of God work in my heart and say, hey, I need to make sure that I work harder on some relationship, forgiving somebody. Don't harden your heart. Don't har- Think through what the Spirit of God has been challenging you to work on. Integrity, purity, sharing the gospel, praying, being in the Word of God. Making sure you're born again. Respond to the Spirit of God. Don't let your heart be hardened by a determination that you will not respond to Christ like these religious leaders. They're a warning to us. We'll get to heaven. We'll be in heaven if we're born again. They don't. But we still, we still don't want to have all the mess that comes with a heart that becomes callous to Jesus Christ.